Hey everybody, welcome back to part two of Trapper's life story and the second half of his life. In this episode, we talk a lot more about his hunting and catching and how everything that he did in his teenage years and his 20s and 30s kind of got him to where he is today and taught him some good tips and tricks and techniques that he currently uses. So we hope y'all enjoy this episode. Second half, I'm not dead yet. I hope you guys are listening and give us some feedback. Let us know how we're doing. Yeah, and hopefully we have many more halves, quarters to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) Hope so. Welcome back, everybody, to Traps Lodge. Everybody, welcome back. So glad you're joining us for episode two of Trapper's Life. Mm. We hope you enjoyed Episode one. <laughs> Hope so. Ended it with the coon story. Mm-hmm. So we're going to pick up today um, around the teenage years. And in this episode, I think we're really going to get more into how you got into the hunting and the capturing and everywhere you've hunted, where you've guided, so that it it really kind of relays to your story as far as why you are so passionate and so good at what you do now. I try to be the best I can be every day. Yeah, so tell us, you left off with um, the coon dog, and uh, we talked a little bit about the lions and tigers and bears and elephants. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so what comes next for Trapper in the teenage years? I mean, I think we're talking 12 to 22 or 25-ish, whatever, cover a lot of ground. I'll try not to leave out too many gory details. I mean, by I started taking hunters to the blinds and picking them up and gutting and skinning deer from eight and 10. And my dad wasn't ever concerned about us getting our homework done. He was concerned about as soon as we got home, we would put on khaki pants and a white shirt and I would help my sister cook in the kitchen and sister Jane and Hunter and Judy would set the dinner table. He had late eighties, early nineties. He had hunters at the house almost every night, um, almost year round. It was a high, it was like a high, time for the exotic industry and a lot of people were searching and hunting and chasing kind of record book trophies and my dad was raising a lot of those things and it went as far as us hunting lions in the big pasture old males that he would kick out and we would hunt them on foot I think he was living in out of Africa at that time he was like that was his thing and it was all done there at the ranch and then we would travel to west texas and i would help him guide all hunters and mule deer hunters in new mexico and help him with his elk camp and mule deer camp and breaking horses growing up we were always if we weren't catching animals we were hunting them or fishing and he pretty much let my brother and i do all the guiding anyway so you know by age 12 he loaded us up and drove us to Alaska and kicked us out. And y'all have heard that story of how my brother and I started working up there. And we did that every summer for the next, oh, it felt like forever. And then he sent my brother and I and, and Jane uh, to Africa to take a PH, a professional hunting course there with Chappie Scott and Noel Ross, which are some of my mentors. And I had some great mentors growing up. Robert A. Smith was, was like this old cowboy guy and, he just loved just to teach us everything he knew and he would be bring big old groups of hunters and Bill Backman had this was a big client of my dad's and I'm in the record book with him 
an SCI, SCI record book. I, I always say, hey, t- talking about measuring tapes, but it was awesome to hunt with with guys like him and Huck Spaulding and and these guys have passed on now, but at the time they were just amazing men and being a little boy looking up to them and all the places they have hunted and all the stories they would tell, you know, sitting around the dinner table and dad drinking wine with them. And I've made all kinds of like lion tooth necklaces and stuff. And my clients would, my dad's clients would buy them from me and tell all these stories of Africa. And you just kind of get lost in this, this lore, you know? So by then I was living with every type of animal you could imagine. And we were raising all these types of animals and, I was so engulfed and ingrained with wildlife and just being part of it that I knew that's where where my road would take me for the rest of my life. And then when I was 15 or or so, I would just I looked in the mirror and I told myself I wanted to be the best hunting guide and the best game capture guide that was ever around. So I want to stop you. I want you to go back to Africa and the pH thing because that's not something that we have here in the states. Correct. And so for people that don't know, what, why is that a big thing? Why does it matter? What is it? I mean, kind of elaborate on that a little bit. So professional hunting school, so to, to be a, a guide, so to speak, what they call them PHs in Africa, professional hunters, you have to go through a pretty rigorous course. It used to be a pretty rigorous two-week course of ethical hunting, judging from how to handle your hunter and his rifle to how to gut skin and cape and how to prepare a table from start to finish starting a hunt taking care of the trophy animal etc etc all along the way and my dad had already taught us a lot of that so we we made that course look pretty easy and those guys were really impressed with the knowledge that we had because my dad wanted to give us that professionalism at a young age we have, we're not required in Texas to have a guide's license, but we are in other, other Western states. And so by the time I was 18, I had a guide's license in Kansas and New Mexico. And then I got a guide's license later in, in um, Wyoming. I had an assistant guide's license in, in Alaska at, at a young age too, helping pack out caribou and moose and stuff like that. So just living it every day. I was talking to this old guy, old client of mine one time, and I was just kind of giving him the life story. He said, you've literally spent every day of your life in the woods around animals. I said, yes, sir. He said, but not only just in one spot, like around the globe. He said, it would take a lifetime to get that experience. And I think I'm in the 1% or 2% of people that have are that way. There's a few guys I know from Africa that have grown up there that have – that knowledge that I have they and they've traveled around to like New Zealand and Alaska and guided and stuff and then being in Texas we can hunt all all year long and so that was like a big thing just experience wise because you've got the whitetail season then you roll into like spring turkey and you hunt exotics all spring and summer and your axis in the summer and you roll into the fall and you're going to Alaska guiding and then you get home from that you go to New Mexico and guide and get through the winter and then summertime I started spending a lot of all, all my summers in, in Africa um, my minimum stay in Africa was like three months three and a half months my longest stay there was 10 months and in Africa is everything from Tanzania south so Tanzania and Zimbabwe Mozambique Botswana Namibia South Africa and all all over it 
And anytime my dad didn't have clients, I was guiding, I was picking up freelance work or anti-poaching control, stuff like that. It was just 24-7, all year long, hunting. And then if I wasn't hunting, I was helping my dad catch. And eventually, our house burnt down, and my dad left the ranch, left me there with my brother. My sisters had moved on. Judy was in college. Jane and her husband bought a house in Hunt, Texas. And then my brother finished out the school year there, and then he went to Solaroff State University in Texas. And so my junior and senior year, I lived on the ranch by myself in the old hunting cabin unsupervised which probably wasn't good good thing i didn't drink back then but all my friends did we had we had a good time but i i started catching on my own at that point and i've I've been catching some of the same ranches since then since age you know 16 or 17 so i've learned my dad taught me a lot but i've learned from a lot of trial and error and when you're hunting like one animal that's pretty hard but to catch like 20 to 40 or 60 at a time is even harder because you're not just outsmarting one anymore. But just spending that much time watching animals, observing them, and just studying them from the age I was just little bitty till now. And I still enjoy how the seasons change. And, you know, the springtime, you get all the babies hitting the ground. And summertime, you're watching the white-tailed bucks grow out. And then now we're in the fall, and the rut's just kicking in. And it's, it's always new and changing and exciting. And I look forward to it every year. It's, I just, I, it never gets old for me, and I'm always learning. So when you were growing up, when you were a teenager in high school and stuff, I mean, you did other things as well. Like, you played sports and stuff, too, mm-hmm. Yeah. right? Did yeah. you ever feel like you were burned out or like you were missing out or anything, or was this always just been 100% like? Oh, I think when I was young, I mean, I played football because my friends played football. I wasn't great at it. I had a little offer to go to Texas Tech and play football. I turned that down because I, I didn't want to play football anymore. I, was, I only played because my friends played. At one point, I was breaking horses and riding horses to school because I didn't have a vehicle to get to school. And I was always late for school. And the reason, like, I failed sixth grade was because I, they dropped me off for school. I'd go fishing down below the uh, schoolhouse and down by the creek. I had a set of fishing poles underneath the bridge there. And I just knew that that's the life for me I did get you know sad sometimes I'd miss the fair or the peach jamboree or some event and I lost friends over the years or just drifted away from friends over the years because I wasn't I wasn't ever there I wasn't ever home and if I was home I was super busy I did go to college for a brief spell and figured out that that was really there was nothing there that they had for me the only thing I learned from college was this uh, a bum that was picking up pecans uh in the school or by the dorm room I was staying in I sat down with him I was BS with him one day and he, he taught me that like he was this wealthy guy and just quit his uh, doctor's practice or whatever and just decided to walk the earth and he had his house in California or somewhere with his wife and he was not really a bum he was just exploring and living his life and he explained to me that the reason you have like f- your fall nuts like pecans and stuff like that in the f- in the fall and winter and then your cherries and and apples is that those those foods that you eat make your feet sweat less so you you stay warmer and then he said the reason that there's citrus in the in the summer like oranges and tangerines and that sort of thing is those foods make your feet sweat more so you stay cooler and that's the only thing I took away from college 
because I had to come home every weekend and work the ranch and guide hunters. And I feel like I'm getting way ahead of myself, but it, I'm trying not to gloss over everything. Oh, there used to be a saying in, in Fredericksburg, because my brother and I didn't get to town much. We were always helping dad or working on the ranch. And then all those, all the soccer moms in town, when we would get to town, they had a saying that said, grab the kids and hide the toys because here come the Burkett boys. So we had a quite the reputation as some hellions, you know. It sounds like it. Okay, so we figure out college doesn't work for you. Um, we know people are locking up their children and their toys when you come around. But what is your first what is your first memory of a catch job that kind of like marks like your beginning of doing it? Because obviously when you were little, right, like you helped with your dad and we heard the story about the fallow buck and the mutton busting scene and all that. But when um, did when did it become when were you like, okay, this is my thing? My dad used to just turn my brother and I loose. He'd go like look at a capture job. Even before I had, or Hunter, I had a driver's license, and then he would just send us to do it. Uh, and Hunter and I would we drove down to Bracketville on the back roads through Rock Springs, and we would go down there on a Friday after school and work Friday night and Saturday night catching black buck. And then we did a big one at Comanche Trace back before that was a sub- subdivision. We cleared a whole lot of animals off there and. I think, I don't know if dad was burnt out on it or what, but he, then he started teaching me how to dart stuff. And I, I took a, a really big understanding to that and understanding the, the drugs that he is, he was using. And he did a lot of research. The state would give him, um, st- different drugs to research and, and write down dosages for them on. And it was, uh, all the time. I mean, I think right after, you know, as soon as the house burned down and, and dad left and I took over pretty much all the catching, it was, I was just, I kind of rode his coattails. He gave me some contacts and a little bit of equipment and said, here you go, take off. So really by the time you were junior, senior in high school, mm-hmm. you were it, like it was your mm-hmm. operation. And I decided I, I wanted to build my name for myself. And I mean, I had to beg, borrow and steal. I had to borrow trucks all the time. I didn't have... I didn't have the equipment it took, but I made it work. And I had a lot of friends help me, and I know who they are, and I'll never forget it. But they would, you know, help me. They'd go help me catch animals. And a lot of my high school buddies, you know, during the summers, then right after high school, the day I, after I graduated, I flew out to to Africa. And then after I got home and quit college and got through the holidays, packed my bags, went to Africa for a long time. And then when I got back from that, I really wanted to get busy in the capture world, but I made sure to balance everything because I was still working for my dad on the hunting side, best hunting company, and and breaking horses still for our pack string in the mountains in New Mexico. He had a elk camp in the Gila Mountains and helped him run that for a lot of years. And we moved to around Unit 36 and 37 in Rio Dosa and Carrizozo and Cloudcroft area. And I always kept the – it's hard just to balance it all. Because if you worked in Alaska, you'd get home from there and you'd have to get your horses in shape and shod and, and ready for the mountains for elk season. And then you get done with that, and it was just right rolls right into whitetail season. But I've caught, I've caught animals from from Mexico to Montana. I've, I mean, you think anything I can, you can almost almost anything you can dream up, I've caught. And 
in Texas, we use we used to use a lot of drop nets and wing nets, pocket nets, and dart gun. And then the, the net gun hit America, and the helicopters started getting busy. And I had my own ground crew for a long time, and I was a jumper and then a net gunner. And I'd, I'd been up north doing the government work, radio collar and moose, and mule deer and bighorn and mountain goats and radio collar and wolves. We even netted some coyotes to do radio collar studies on them. Which so, so for people that don't know. What is what does that mean? Radio what, collaring. Oh, uh, they just do it for research for, it? for like they're trying to figure out their migration routes and stuff like that, and monitoring them for CWD and stuff like that. Okay, and what's a jumper and a gunner and all these words that people that don't know what the capture industry is well, about we, are probably sitting there going, "What the heck?" <laughs> okay, well, if you're in a four seat helicopter and you're in a Hughes five hundred um, up there, in, like in Montana and Wyoming, where we did a lot of catching in Colorado. You'd have a pilot, and then the guy next to him is the net gunner. He's got a net gun, which is usually a 308 plank built on a Thompson Centerfire um, pistol. And we put a gas coupler on the end of it, and then the the canister, you pack the net in there, and there's four weights. So there's four corners of the net, and you pack the the weights in there, and you pack the net down in there and put tape over it, and that, that coupler's onto the end of that gun. And net gunning sounds really like a fun, prestigious, badass job. And it, it is, and it was, but it literally wrecks your hands. It just tears your hands up so bad. And then the old school guns were coated guns, and those were shoulder guns. We, I had to use one of those, net gun and moose, and I think I dislocated my shoulder from shooting that thing. And it tears your hands up from the recoil? Yeah, recoil is pretty bad. And then, so so after, so you've got your net gunner. And then you, so the first guy, or the first animal, the net gunner shoot, shoots it, and then the the jumper in the back seat jumps out and tackles it and ties it and does all that stuff. Okay. Sometimes you have some help. If you have a big animal like a moose, you'd, you'd both get out or all three, if you were carrying two, two jumpers and a gunner, but normally it was just two, a gunner and a jumper. And this is common, right? Yeah. I mean, this is day. what happens with move. Anytime you have to really move exotics or like you said, kind of, you don't always have to use a helicopter. And every situation is different. I do a lot of darting off the ground. I do a lot of now. I've I've I invented the black trap, black plastic traps, probably 15 years ago, uh, to try to replace the drop nets because those were a lot of work. And a drop net's like a big tent that you put up without walls, and you it's just a big net hanging up in the air, and you feed underneath it, and animals come underneath it, and you you drop it on them. And back in the old days, we used dynamite caps, and then they outlawed those. And I came up with a center drop system invented that then even tied a slip knot in it to just where you just jerk a rope and the whole net would fall down and the most animals i've caught by myself underneath the drop net was 47 odd ad and it was 21 degrees in december and i'll never told myself i'd never do that again and then three days later i dropped the same net on like 20 you were by yourself yeah what did you do with the 40 of them while you Uh, i just backed the trailer up there and started rustling them from the net to the trailer and it took me another day and a half to recover from being sore from that did you lose any no it was cold enough i didn't lose any and they were they're tough animals I mean, no I, I mean like lose like get out of the net uh-uh no, like escape was, from it you it was all balled <laughs> up and stood there and flopped there and i was just lucky and i mean i've dropped on about 18 axes by myself and that doesn't sound like the smartest thing you've ever done yeah my back's pretty wore out from it i hope hope I never have to do it again so I've, I've evolved and come up with better ways to do it but I remember sitting up 
in a tree just for my dad as a kid just watching the net waiting stuff waiting for stuff to come in and you're literally like right over the top of them and you've got to be stock still for three hours and you get over that real quick oh so you do have patience yeah i do <laughs> i do i've spent a lot when of it hours comes to, when it comes to hunting and capturing when you're, when you're only as good as uh you're only a, you're only a good predator if you're as patient as your prey that's a good one. Good point. Okay, so what is your this is I don't even think you can answer this question. I was gonna ask what your best hunting memory is, but do you even have one? You have so many. Hmm. I do have a lot. But I think my one of my favorites is we loaded up to go to Del Rio to catch some barasinga, I think, from with my dad. And it's all four of us kids. And uh, it's kind of a capture and hunting story. But uh, my dad was darting Barasinga, and he dropped me off on one. I was holding their head up. And, what is that? Uh, it's a, it's about a red deer-sized animal. They're, I can't remember where they're from, China or Indonesia or somewhere. They're kind of a weird-looking deer. Anyway, and I was sitting on this female Barasinga, and Hunter tells this story better because I think he got off of her to take a leak. And Dad went back to get the trailer hooked on and he's coming around the bend and all of a sudden she stands up and i've got her by the ears and i'm literally just she's just running across this mesquite flat like just full out and my dad comes around the corner he says he just looks over and sees me floating across the top of the trees or the brush and a cloud of dust and my brother's running behind me and finally she stumbles and falls and we do a couple somersaults and of course i roll up banged up and bruised and and um, that was the first part of that story. The second part is my dad had permission to, to let us kids shoot some black buck on that place. And the girls got to shoot their first black buck. I think Hunter and I got to shoot ours too. And my dad was letting us shoot a 22 Hornet. And then I remember when Judy shot hers, nobody could figure out where she hit it, but it she shot it in the eyeball and it hit the back of the skull and came out the nose. So there wasn't a single like bullet hole in the skin. And there were some wow, of the, that's crazy. There were some of the biggest black buck that we'd ever really seen. And that was a, a fun hunt because that was one of the only times all four of us were together on a hunt, other than when my mom would take us and stuff us all in a deer blind and sit there with us, which I, obviously I don't remember those days. But, you know, growing up, I did everything my brother did. And when he started wanting to rodeo, well, I started rodeoing too, so... I was already breaking horses and stuff like that in high school and at a young age from my dad and he started wanting to ride bulls and I think that was the only thing I was better at than him was rodeoing was riding bulls the first bull ride, bull I went on that that thing about me not letting go I didn't I should have let go of the rope I slid down off the side of the side of the bull and he threw his head and hit me right in the face and about knocked me out and bloodied my mouth and my nose and I was all sore the next day and my sister Jane asked me if I was going to still that was a Friday night practice ride for at Lester Myers just for the Stonewall Youth Rodeo I told my sister yeah I'm going to get on today and she said you 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 still want to stick with it I said yep so I got on that Saturday morning and I, I won second place at that rodeo sorry I'm bouncing around guys there's just too much I'm probably glossed over in the first 15 minutes because i was excited maybe <laughs> there's a lot to tell so um 
let's go back to how long was your well first finish your rodeo story you didn't rodeo for very long did yeah, you Yeah, probably 10 years 10 years mm-hmm. no mean, not professionally or anything but i didn't think you lasted that long yeah i mean i wasn't ever good enough at it to be a professional but anytime i was home and there was a boat ride and i went to it okay so you didn't do just rodeoing you just no. fit it like did yeah, it when i just you fit were... it in in between sometimes i'd make money at it most of the time i'd lose money at it i mean during high school hunter and i rodeoed quite a bit and you know if we could get out get off get off the ranch we'd go rodeo and travel around had some friends of mine marshall schlesinger and bill herbert was a, a good one that when we traveled they pretty much bought the gas because i was never winning enough to have any money but those two guys were and they were they were pros at it bill still probably rodeos a little bit today you were a rodeo clown right yeah i figured i wasn't very much good at bull riding i was gonna ask if you prefer rodeo clown or bullfighter well i went to <laughs> well, i've done both it's funny because I, I used to ride bulls and then i'd have to be a a bullfighter so I'd, they'd buck my bull out first and they'd have one bullfighter there then i'd have to suit up and be the other bullfighter and then my, a friend of mine that we used to go to his practice arena over here actually in bernie howard stevens he got sick one summer and he he was the barrel man he was the funny man the rodeo clown and he asked me if i'd kind of take over his gig for him while he was getting better and i did that and he had a pet skunk and all kinds of little tricks and traits and I just traveled around with the Lester Meyer rodeo crew and I was kind of the barrel man. I'd toss out bubble gum and do backflips off of horses. And I think I was spending more money on face paint and bubble gum than I, than I made in a <laughs> night, but it was fun while it lasted and didn't really pay the bills, but it was something, something to do. And riding bulls never really paid the bills either. I got busted up a lot riding bulls, but I got hurt way, way worse doing game capture. I mean, I broke my collarbone a few times riding bulls, but Nothing too serious, you know, getting stepped on and teeth knocked around and stuff like that. But, like, catching animals, I had an axis antler go through my cheek, chip my tooth. I got a, had a horn in, the, horn in the back of my head from a Gimsbach cow that was coming out of a net. And I tackled her from the behind because my other, other guys were in front of her. I didn't want them to get stabbed, and she threw her head back. And if she'd have caught me any lower, might probably would have punctured my jugular and probably not be on this podcast yeah i'm sensing a a theme through all of your life stories here good score well i didn't think i didn't plan on living this long so i was gonna live real fast so all right let's talk a little bit about the hunting side of things because i think um especially now with like um white tail seasoning just opening and you you don't want to hear my best story sure best (laughs) story about what well you remember the story about when sharon's volleyball game was going and I promised her I was going to be at her volleyball game in Utopia. Mm-mm. Yeah, so I walked into, I got horned in the leg by a psycho buck, crossloading him on another trailer, and had a bandana tied around my leg. And I was walked into the, the thing, what do you call it? The gym. Gym. And uh, I was dripping blood on the floor, and Jane waves her hands at me, and I go up and sit beside her, and she's like, you know, you're dripping blood out of, out of your boot and I was like yeah I got horned it's like but I promised Sharon I'd be at this game and so after that she we went to her house and she stitched me up she's a nurse by the way so she's she stitched me up at least four times I've stitched myself up three times one was in Mexico I wasn't gonna go to hospital in Mexico you must have been going for uncle of the year award I think it was 
<laughs> you want to talk more about hunting. I was getting all excited talking about riding bulls and catching. You just want to talk about all the blood and gore. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So re recap where all you've had guides licensed, New Mexico, Kansas, yeah. Wyoming, Alaska. Yeah, I was the youngest guide in the Kansas with the highest scoring out-of-state score there. I took my Ph course in South Africa. I've had a, had a uh, guide's license in New Mexico for a long time. Uh, guide's license in Alaska and Wyoming. I've hunted, I've hunted in Argentina, Africa, and North America, just about all of the Where was the US. hardest state to get licensed in of all those states? Man, surprisingly, they don't require one anymore, but Kansas was really difficult because I didn't realize how much migratory birds and waterfowl they had there. And to like absorb all of that was, was really difficult because the rest of it's pretty much common sense. I mean, not completely common sense. You got to know the laws, but, um, yeah, the, the the amount of uh, bird life that comes through Kansas was that was a hard test. I would imagine, especially because you're not an avid. I mean, you you bird hunt. I you're bird hunt, but I, but I'm not the guy that can tell you what something is when it flies by and there's like 50 different species of ducks that come through there. I'm like, oh, that's a green winged teal. That's a blah 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 blah. That's a. I mean, there there are experts in that world. I mean, I love duck hunting and dove hunting and wing shooting but i'm not a i'm not an expert waterfowl guy we don't live in that area where there's a lot of waterfowl i mean i know what a mallard looks like and a widgeon and a canvas back and a redhead and a pintail i know what a canvas back looks like because i drink the wine oh well, <laughs> it looks like a wine bottle huh no they have a picture of it on the wine bottle mm. i'll show it to you and you can tell me if it resembles a uh, real one okay 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 <laughs> so i mean yeah catching i've caught from Mexico to Montana hunting of anything with an A Alaska Argentina and Africa and everything in between and I, I wanted I wanted to do of New Zealand I've been there hunting I've guided a lot in the U.S. and then Africa mostly I wanted to do some Australia stuff and I want to do some some Europe stuff I'd like to get to to some Spain and see the ibex hunting and stuff over there i've been seeing a lot of posts about it and that's kind of interested interested me yeah well your friend jimmy guides in mongolia yeah mongolia he go he's a big sheep uh we always say jimmy so jimmy owens jim owens owns lost creek outfitters in cody wyoming he's a bighorn guide there he's he's great at sheep hunting and he's got the legs underneath him to do it he's a little younger than i am and he's in great shape and that's what it takes to be a good sheep guy is to be in extremely good shape. And he goes to Mongo Mongolia and guides, I think, uh, Marco Polo or one of those really big, expensive sheep. That's cool. And I remember you got real interested. Yeah. I was interested when he was talking about yeah. it. He said the food's bad, but other than that, it's really cool. Yeah. That's awesome. So, okay. So where you want to hunt that you haven't yet? You said New Zealand? No, I've been to New else? Zealand. Oh, no, I'm sorry. You said Spain. Australia, Spain. I wanted to do Australia when I was in New Zealand, but I just didn't have enough time, which is surprisingly in my world normally not the case. I normally overstay somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> so what's your what is your favorite animal to hunt? Mm. I know. I'm asking hard questions. I'm making you pick one of like everything. Can't answer that. I love hunt. not an option, you have to answer. <laughs> I love hunting big mule deer. It's I've always loved it, and I think at, at an early age, it was a really difficult thing for me to acquire. Uh, hunting in New Mexico on public land, there just wasn't a lot of great mule deer there. And I had some clients miss some big ones, and it was just kind of always haunted me, so maybe that's 
one thing, Axis is like probably my number one exotic in Texas because ever since I was a kid, I wanted to kill a big Axis buck. And I've killed at least 130 trophy Axis deer. And the largest one I've killed is 35. I've killed a lot of over 30. And I get hunters that like, hey, man, I want a 36-inch Axis. I'm like, let me put it into perspective for you. I've personally killed this many, and I've only killed one. It's not even close to that, or you know, thirty under that. So, big axes is I love, love, love them. Big mature mule deer. When I'm in Africa, I I love hunting big kudu bulls, big greater kudu bulls, and their habitat and their wild. They're I feel like they're majestic. They're very majestic. They're kind of some. I compare them to like our elk. Like our elk are very Mm -hmm. majestic, and those kudu to me are very majestic and. They're smart and they can get cagey and they, they can hide a big animal like that. They can hide. I mean, they call them the African gray ghost. Obviously here we call the white tail our gray ghost, but I mean, just talking that kind of stuff. I mean, Cape Buffalo is great, but honestly, we can affordable animal is, is, is kudu. Every time I go to Africa, I'd probably shoot one or two. And the prices in Africa are a lot different than here, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like a lot different. A lot different. A lot different. You can do a really good hunt in Africa for ten grand and kill probably seven animals if you're hunting plains game. Yeah. I mean you throw start throwing out big five like lion, leopard, elephant, rhino, that's you're talking big money there, but I mean you can do like kudu impala, springbok, buzzbok, wildebeest, diker for probably eight, eight grand and then plus your plane ticket. So if I, if someone's um, thinking about getting into the hunting industry and they haven't ever shot anything before, what is kind of like a first animal that you think is good? Mm, I've had people pick a lot of weird firsts. Really? You know, you think they just go with whitetail, but they're like, nope, I want to shoot an axis buck. I want, that's never shot anything. I want to shoot an axis buck. I think they look pretty and I hear the meat's good. So there's really no like, um, it depends on the age of the hunter, but I think if it's a a young kid, novice hunter, young, I think we need to stick with something that they have a lot of time to take aim at, like sitting in a blind at a feeder, that they have minutes to take the shot. Right. Rather than if you're hunting safari style, they have seconds to take the shot. So that's where my perspective is from a guide. Right. That makes sense. I'm I'm one of those people. I need minutes. (laughs) I got to work on that. I think it just takes a lot of hunting and a lot of practice to get to where you're good and confident with a gun where you just like throw up and shoot within like, as you're loading it, coming up to your shoulder, finding your target and shooting it. I think that's just takes a lot of experience. My problem, and this might be other people that don't hunt a lot. I don't know. I might be sounding really silly when I say this. Mine is always, um, finding the target. Like, I don't know how to say this without sounding dumb. You're going to be like, this is my wife, but like how far away I am from my scope, like, you know, just getting the right distance from the scope to where you see everything and then finding the target. That's that's eye relief. And a lot of times that again takes practice and the right setup. So, you know, that stock being too long or that scope not being set right. That's the problem there. Yeah. And I'm always using someone else's gun. So, Mm -hmm. well, like yours, Mm -hmm. for instance. So, Um, okay. So what is something that when you started in the hunting industry guiding, because obviously you've been guiding from a very, very young age. Mm -hmm. Um, when was there a moment when you like learned a really big lesson? 
like either you had a major screw up or something happened Mm. or you just everything turned out okay but you like learned oh i'm not gonna do that again there's a lot of things i can check off my list (laughs) so guiding elk in the mountains i learned that sometimes you need to like live another day and not kill an elk in a hellhole because killing elk's not the hard part it's getting it out and if you can't get a horse to it and you got to do it on your back which i've had to do a hundred hundreds of times that is the the most work you can do and if if you don't have packers and a lot of help and having to do it by yourself talking like five six seven trips three or four miles deep so how do you explain that to your hunter you just tell him like that yeah like and also like shooting an elk right at dark is sometimes not the best idea so a lot of guys will shoot an elk right at dark and they don't even have a flashlight in their pack and you're and then it's like dark well like we still have to gut it or like if it's warm in new mexico you need to take it apart and quarter it hang it in a tree and then you're trying to find your way back to camp in the dark at like two o'clock in the morning you know or midnight there's just I i think you need to hunt smarter and then instead of being like there's just other variables that come into like elk hunting and if you have the help or if you can get a horse to it it makes your life completely so much easier but hunting in some of that rough stuff in the gila and guiding in that you would kill an elk in some places that you can't get a, a mule within half a mile or a mile and you're talking like straight up and down kind of stuff hmm. so those Sounds are lessons strenuous I, <laughs> so those are lessons i've learned Um, I think things like that, um, it's always interesting to hear you talk because you always say things that I'm like, oh, I've never thought of that. Or, oh, when you say it, right, that makes perfect sense to mm -hmm. everybody. But how many people have probably made that mistake? Probably a lot. You know, and so I think there's something being that you started so young. It's like, well, yeah, after the fact, when you tell everybody this, it makes sense not to do that. But. I mean, those are things that younger guides and people that haven't been hunting a long time maybe like still haven't learned. I think that's something that you really bring a lot of value is just the amount of times you've done things you you learn like, through trial and error. Exactly. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to tell somebody something because I think I know. I'm going to tell you because I've done it or tried it and I know. Yeah, what is it you always tell me when we argue? You're like, I don't tell you things if I don't know I'm right. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, If I don't know I'm right, we're not arguing over anything. I'm just going to let you have it. (laughs) You win because I don't know how to turn on the computer or start the washer or dryer. (laughs) I'm not going to argue that. If you want to talk about something in my world, I'm not going to think I know it. I'm going to tell you that I know it because I've lived it. I've lived it my entire life. I've lived it so much that I can normally almost every time tell you what an animal is going to do before they do it just being around them so much and just knowing their nature and it's funny how animals have personalities just like everything else so talk a little bit on that how much how much does that right there that quality make you a better guide like i don't think like a person when i'm hunting i'm thinking of like what's he thinking what, how is that particular species of that animal, what's his day-to-day routine, and what's he thinking? Is he in a rut? Is he just hungry? Is he going to bed down? What's, you know, what's his day-to-day routine? And then how much pressure 
is he going to allow me? Because there's always, it, it may be 50 yards or it may be 500 yards, but there's a buffer where an animal is just where it's out of its comfort zone and you're going to blow them out. And you have to know from species to species and hunting, hunting ground to hunting ground, like how much hunting pressure has been there, how much isn't. And just knowing every species and just what they do. I think that, yeah, that's a, that's a huge thing. And I think that's, once again, one of the reasons why your hunters are so successful when they come with you, because there's guys, you set them up for success. Right. Right. And there's been plenty of failures. Don't get me wrong. There's been plenty of failures, but I've got, I've learned like make the first shot the most important. Like that's your, like that's not screw up this shot. Let's make sure it's perfect and make sure you feel good about it. You have confidence in it. Talking to Hunter through the shot because after that, it could be catastrophe. We wounded it and it's getting away or going to get away or it's all high fives and we're all happy. But you learn that over time of being patient with your hunter because a lot of times a hunter can't see what you can see and you have to like walk your hunter into like an animal that you spot like a long way away. So you start really big, like on the skyline, like, okay, you see that peak or that tree on that bald hill, then you see this and then you see this and you walk them to it that way. Or you walk them to like an animal, like, okay, you see this little bush in front of us? Yeah. Okay. Like the next big one and the next, okay. Now you go left like 45 degrees and he's in that shadow. But you don't realize that people that are in an office building or a doctor's office and they're staring at a computer screen most of the day, their eyes aren't acclimated to picking up those animals. And so you're spotting for them all the time. Well, yeah. And also, I mean, I don't know if this happens to you because you've hunted forever, but like they're probably nervous. And if they're not nervous, they're probably anxious or excited. It's not a day-to-day thing that they're doing. So, I mean, the more that I think you can set them up for that success or any guide, um, the better. And I definitely think it's important. It's nice to have guys that, that, that are calm and happy and, um, that will help you also spot game. Cause I don't, a lot of times I'm looking too far. Like if we're driving, I'm looking a lot of times I'm looking like 300 yards plus and everybody's like, Oh, there's a deer. I'm like, where are you looking way out? And they're like, no, like right, in front of like you. right there. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh, like 50 yards there. I'm like, Oh, duh dummy. Like that. I look like a dumb guide. I enjoy it. I enjoy putting smiles on people's faces. I enjoy fulfilling their dreams. I enjoy teaching new guys how to hunt and the return guys sharing those stories that, you know, Hey, remember 10 years ago when we were hunting so-and-so and blah, blah, blah happened. I mean, it's just, it just builds your story and your legacy and who you are and, and your credibility as, as a person and being like a rancher and, and raising exotics and, catching exotics like being able to to talk to some of the top ranch managers in texas uh, like the ox or you know what's that other one Uh, champion and all that stuff and then they ask for your knowledge and everything like that's that's to me it's important like it makes you feel good like wow this this person actually respects my knowledge enough yeah i think what you said you you kind of glossed over it but um when you said the hunters returning with stories about having hunted with you before, and that is one thing that um, I notice a lot when I'm around is that y'all pick right back up kind of where you left Mm -hmm. off and there's like a friendship and just a bond in the hunting lodge. And it's just really cool. And then the other thing I've noticed when hunting with you is that you try really hard to make the hunter like 
y'all are a team, Mm -hmm. you know, like the way you communicate with them and just the, the, you're never above them, you Mm -hmm. know, like y'all are a team going out together and your expertise and their excitement. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's really cool to watch. So I've also been able to watch like, like hunt with like three generations at a time. Like I've hunted with the dad that now he becomes a, you know, the granddad. And then now you're taking the grandson out hunting and like watching that all, you know, evolution. And then watching that grandson grow up and the next thing you know he's getting married like we went to nick thomas's wedding mm-hmm. i can remember when he was like a little bitty kid the first time he hunted with me and man you're old <laughs> it's not the years it's the miles <laughs> i'm just kidding no yeah that was cool and i remember him saying like um i think you took his sister right to shoot her mm-hmm. first yeah. something yeah. and she was probably like eight yeah so very cool story You have got, well, you definitely have, um, I mean, we could sit here for hours, I'm sure. (laughs) Did we tell people to get a six pack again before this episode? No, I just didn't want to make people drink just because I'm talking. They do that on their own. (laughs) Um, all right. Well, anything kind of last minute on hunting, capturing, rodeo clowning? (laughs) Plus I didn't want, want to get, make Josh get a six pack when he's driving to Lano in the morning. Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) If you're um, listening to this in the daylight, no six packs. <laughs> uh, no, it's just there's probably just way too much that you can fit into a 45-minute segment. And I'm sure as we go on and as I remember stories that we'll, we'll share a lot more with you. But it's it's been a colorful life to say the least. And I don't know how I've crammed it all in. And I've been blessed with a lot of great clients and that have all turned into friends. I've been blessed with great mentors my dad was one of them and a lot of his friends, you know, my heroes have always been cowboys and they were always around. So I think one thing I can say is the ripple effect. I live my life in this ripple effect. Like if I can throw a stone in the water and it creates a ripple. So if I can throw a stone in somebody's life and and create a positive energy in, in their life of that carrying forward my knowledge or someone's knowledge that they gave to me and if I can hand that off to somebody else and create that ripple in our community and in our our hunting world and our exotic industry and our whitetail industry and just our outdoor industry whether it be what type of fly do you use or what type of scope do you put on this or what do you recommend I do with this or how do I skin a deer for a shoulder mount just any kind of information I can give to people and it affects their life in a positive way and then they can in turn affect somebody else's life in a positive way. I think that's to me the most important thing in life. That's very true. I I would agree. There's, um, there's too many people that are angry these days and mad at the world. And I think the, the more that we can all just try to be good and nice and happy. And, and I told you this weekend, like I'm so excited, like opening day of rifle was just past Saturday and seeing all the trucks and, a UTV is going down the road and then that was like on Friday or everybody's heading to their lease or their, the ranch or on a hunt. And we had hunters out and then Sunday I'm coming back through town and there's, you know, racks on the back of trucks and you see ice chest ice down with deer meat. And it was, I'm excited. It just, it just makes me happy to see all these people getting out there. And I, I support everybody else that's doing it. Like, I'm not a jealous guy. Like, oh, that guy went hunting with that ranch. Like, I don't 
I mean, I don't care. They, my hunters bounce around and try new things and come back and hunt with me for this or that. But just, I'm excited just for the outdoorsman. I, when you see all these pickups and their stickers and their, all their garb, you know, I'm just like, man, that guy's got a nice buck on the back of that truck. And yeah, you know, he had a good weekend. Yeah. I'm just like, man, he's gotta be feeling good about life. And the game warden pulled me over coming back from Mark Ivy's and he asked me, I guess he was just checking, you know, he's just checking everybody. So oh, I pulled you over for your missing a front license plate. And I was like, mm, wonder where that is probably in a brush pile somewhere. <laughs> anyway, I was like, Oh, okay. And of course the dogs are with me and they're all wanting to lick him in the face he's trying to talk to me and he said well you coming from a hunt lease i said no sir i'm out, out guiding on mark ivy's ranch he said oh okay okay he said got any animals in here i said not nothing dead i said just these two live ones and he was like all right trapper have a good day and blah blah, blah be safe and i said oh you be safe too sir and so it's nice to see those guys are out there working too making sure people are you know abiding the laws and make sure they have a hunt license and all that so yeah but yeah. i mean rolling down the road it looks like I'm definitely a hunter, you know, hunt, driving a hunting rig down the road, so. Yes, we don't own a single normal vehicle. Yours is normal. My truck, yeah. <laughs> I guess my truck's normal. Yeah. Um, well, awesome, and yeah, like you said, I mean, we're just getting started. I think this is only, like, what, episode 13 or something, so uh, there, kept count. there's going to be plenty more opportunities to dive, like, deeper into stuff, but I think this episode was important to give people kind of a, a backstory of where your knowledge comes from and like you said, um, like why, you know what you know and you, and you really know what you know. (laughs) I've lived it. I've done it and I've made the mistakes in doing it, catching and hunting both. And, and the catching side of it's really made me a better hunter. It's made me understand that animal better. Yeah, absolutely. Well, awesome. Well, thank you for sharing your story with us. I'm sure everyone appreciates it. I had, I always like hearing the stories again, even though I've heard them several times, but (sighs) I'm sure I'll hear them several more <laughs> in our life together. Maybe. I mean, you know, we start having grandkids. i got to tell them again. Oh, Lord. <laughs> Wait, having grandkids? Well, we got to have kids first. But... <laughs> I was going to say, do you know something I don't? <laughs> no, I, got, I got nephews i got to teach and true. talk to and tell stories around campfires. Yes, absolutely. All right, everybody. Well, y'all enjoy your day or your evening or whatever time of day it is. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening and just... Um, thanks for your support and get out there and support your fellow outdoorsmen and have a great great hunting season i'm excited about it our acorn crop is almost zero here in the hill country so they're hungry and coming to corn and there's going to be some really great bucks that are going to show up in the Fredericksburg newspaper this year i promise you you guys have a great one signing off